As mentioned in my previous work on the book of Genesis, there are two distinct creation narratives present at the beginning of the book, both well known in popular culture. The second continues from the first, starting in the middle of chapter 2 verse 4, but immediately distinguishes itself from the first in several ways. Quoting here, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, New Revised Standard Version. Hail and welcome to A Satanist Reads the Bible, exploring the Bible, Christianity, and other religions and their sacred texts through the lens of Satanism in order to reinvent religion for myself. Today's reading is another account of the creation, which concerns Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This is the fourth of my early essays, and I think that over the course of my first four essays, I got progressively further and further from making very much sense before things kind of locked in, and I started explaining my ideas in a clearer way. And this is the last essay before that happened. I've got some great ideas here, and they're still important to me in terms of framing my overall thought, but I spent a lot of time shaking my head when I read through this for the first time since I posted it in preparation for this reading. But this is great, because now I can actually explain myself a bit better, and it's going to make for a really cool show. News of the week. This week I've got news regarding the show. I met earlier this week, at least the week during which I recorded this episode, which was the week of Monday, August 19th, with a pastor from a local church. I'm not going to name him because I don't know yet whether he would want his name affiliated with this show. My partner met him at a networking event and mentioned my blog and podcast, and the pastor was intrigued and wanted to meet me. I'm happy to talk with anyone at all about religion, so we met up on Monday over coffee and talked about our respective beliefs and backgrounds. It was a great, productive conversation. The pastor was very respectful and did not make any effort to convert me. It seemed he was primarily only curious about me and my religious beliefs. He and I have many of the same problems and concerns with modern religiosity, so however we may differ in our specific beliefs, I think he would make a useful ally against those whom I think are the true enemy, who appropriate religion for the purposes of power, money, and violence. What's more, he offered to work with me and help me in some research I've been wanting to do into the Gospels and the ethical framework established by the biblical Jesus. Such a process would give both of us a new perspective on the Bible. I think that that would be a really fun project, so I hope that we can make that happen. No word yet on whether or not the pastor will be appearing on the show himself, but if that's possible, that's something I'd like to make happen as well. Also, someone mailed me propaganda. I mentioned in my essay and podcast on religious propaganda that I was looking for more propaganda to analyze, and I got a physical letter from Rowan, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Rowan in New Zealand with some really interesting material. So Rowan, thank you so much. I appreciate your thoughtful letter and the material you've sent me, and I'm going to get to work on it right away. I don't think it warrants a full episode, but I'd definitely like to do a segment on it in the podcast. My album recommendation this week is Emergence by Dreadnought. Dreadnought is a local band for me, and they're a big name in the Denver metal scene, but might not be more widely known, and I'd like to correct that. Summer is starting to wind down, and this is a perfect album for heat, light, and long days in which one might come home, sit in the hammock, crack a beer, light a joint, and go on a journey. 
This is progressive metal of the highest order, with long songs and complex arrangements. Emergence is undeniably a metal album, but whenever I'm thinking of comparisons, it's never metal bands that come up, except perhaps the August Maudlin of the Well. More often I think of Debussy and Yes. Words never do justice to music, but when trying to evoke what Dreadnought has created, I get more lost than usual. It's up on Bandcamp, it's up on Spotify, it's up on Google Play. Go dig in and get back to me when you're back on this planet. Book of the Week. Once again this week, I'm trying to save some money, which means not buying books in my usual quantities, although I did just buy a Latin grammar. But I am still reading Words of Radiance, the second book in the Stormlight Archive by Brandon Sanderson. The Stormlight Archive does everything that high fantasy book series ever do. But every single thing that the Stormlight Archive does, it does better than it has ever been done before. World building, characters, thematics, philosophy, you name it. Maybe there are other series that got there first, but never have they reached these heights. It took me a while on this one to get hooked. I think about 200 pages into the first book, The Way of Kings, because at first it's hard to distinguish from just another high fantasy series. But once you're in, you've got a new world to live in. On to this week's essay, Another Account of the Creation. And heads up, normally I just read straight through, but I'm going to be pausing a lot here to explain myself. The day that God made the earth and the heavens was, according to the first narrative, three days, the first through the third. And in this narrative, he is creating humans no later than that, in contrast to that happening on the sixth day in the first narrative. Vegetation was not created ex nihilo, but rather would be a consequence of God causing it to rain. There is only a single man created rather than all of humankind, and the name for God is different as well. Elohim, God, in the first chapter, and Yahweh in the second. Uh, the second name is traditionally transliterated as YHWH, written without vowels because it is considered too sacred to write or pronounce in full replaced in speech by Lord, Adonai, literally my lords, which is the uh, pluralis maestasis, which is uh, the royal we, when, uh, for example, the, the famous quip of the Queen of England, we are not amused, referring to the self in the first person plural uh, as a mark of sort of royal status. That's the same thing that's happening here. Uh, rather than a title, this name, YHWH, which is also known as the Tetragrammaton, uh, the name of God has its own name, but this is an actual name as a person would have rather than a title or designation. As much as all this might give one a reason to throw the book out as failing right out of the gate to maintain any consistency with itself, I find that it makes for a far more interesting and more meaningful read when viewed in the context in which these narratives were written, and when the contradictions are seen as signifiers of semiotic meaning rather than symbolic. Confer with Kristeva, uh, Revolution in Poetic Language. Definitely need to pause on that one. So... What I would do in some of these early essays is just kind of throw out a philosophical reference by way of saying, uh, hey, you want to know more about it? Here's the name of the book. Go read it. That's probably not super practical for a lot of people, especially when I could just sort of explain the idea myself. And also there's the issue of me throwing out these ideas without fully understanding them myself. And I understand more a lot a lot more about Kristeva now than I did when I first wrote this essay. Uh, but I still would not consider myself a Kristevian scholar by any stretch of the imagination. But what I'm talking about here 
Julia Kristeva is a Bulgarian-French philosopher uh, and feminist and theorist. Um, one of the first philosophers I started studying when I started getting into this whole thing, and just really a brilliant mind with regards to the philosophy of language in particular. She also has a lot of areas regarding abjection and horror that I'd like to explore a little more. But anyway, she has this notion of the semiotic versus the symbolic, and the symbolic is kind of the realm that I'm operating in right now, where I'm saying words, and those words hit your ears, and they mean things in your brain. Uh, in a really kind of direct way of correspondence, but there's also there's also what uh, Kristeva calls the semiotic, which is different from semiotics in the usual sense, but it refers to uh, something more instinctual, something more deeply psychological, something that comes more from our intentions uh, and is less concerned with the absolute meaning of words and more concerned with uh, the way language is structured, just as an example. Really wish I could explain that better for you, but uh, I think I'll just move on. So we're talking about how with these early narratives, we're looking at them less in terms of their absolute literal meaning, but more their subtextual poetic possibilities. So continuing on, it's entirely possible that the authors did not intend to represent a literal account of creation in either case, in the case of either the first creation narrative or the second creation narrative, but rather intended a poetic expression of a god who encompasses the myriad cultures, traditions, and sometimes contradictory beliefs which had consolidated into the religion of the ancient Hebrews across the last two millennia before the Common Era. Those who have transcribed and compiled these texts in the form that we know today do not seem at all wary of contradictions. Rather, they seem to have embraced them. I particularly appreciate de Susan Ellsworth's on the matter. Just as a blueprint will give us a sectional view of a volume, one could say that myths inscribe in the phenomenal world the world of primeval forms. I disagree with those authors who are unable to break loose from their time-space continuum and see in myth a story happening at the dawn of time. In reality, myth is a meta-history, forever present. That's from a book called uh, The Body and Its Symbolism, which was published in 1974 by the author Anik de Susanel. And this is, this is a weird book. It deals with the relationship between Kabbalah, which is a sort of mystical, esoteric interpretation of Judaism and the symbolism of the human body. It's a strange book, and it makes a lot of, let's say, interesting claims. Uh, but I do like this expression here that the idea is that myth is not an idea of something happening in the past, but a way of interpreting the world as it is happening. Moving on, referencing that quote from the second creation narrative, breath is here that which gives life to the first man. Neshama, which can also, as with ruach, wind, from Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, be translated as spirit. And rather than simply creating humans ex nihilo, in the first account, God is present in the world and creates the first man by hand. And in the subsequent verses, he plants the Garden of Eden, again, rather than simply causing vegetation to appear. And in the next chapter, he walks through the garden, creating sound as he moves. This is a very different picture of God than the literalists often present. And a very different picture from the God of the first chapter. 
Why HWH is immanent rather than transcendent, in and of the world rather than apart from and above it. And as well, rather than creating in bulk, he's doing some very specific and enigmatic things. Quoting here, Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, it's Genesis chapter 2 verse 9. And, quoting again, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Curious. Why then create the tree in the first place, especially given what follows, which an omniscient God would have foreseen? A literal reading requires a reconciliation, my favorite of which is from Leibniz. Quoting here, Now this supreme wisdom, united to a goodness that is no less infinite, cannot but have chosen the best. For as a lesser evil is a kind of good, even so a lesser good is a kind of evil if it stands in the way of a greater good. And there would be something to correct in the action of God, the actions of God, if it were possible to do better. As in mathematics, when there is no maximum nor minimum, in short, nothing distinguished, everything is done equally, or when that is not possible, nothing is at all is done, so it may be said likewise in respect of perfect wisdom, which is no less orderly than mathematics, that if we're not the best, optimum, among all possible worlds, God would not have produced any. That's from uh, Leibniz's Theodicy, um, published in 1710, translation from E.M. Huggard. But I believe that his attempt to rationalize away an apparent contradiction overlooks something more valuable. And what Leibniz is saying there, Leibniz is talking about this idea called the best of all possible worlds, uh, where um, the world is the way that it is because whatever evil happens in the world, for example, quote-unquote evil like Adam eating from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, if that were not able to happen, then either the world would be worse than it is in some way, or it simply wouldn't be able to happen at all. But once again, what I'm saying here is that trying to take these contradictions and rationalize them the way is the wrong way to look at the text. Let's take a quick break and talk support. I'm putting a lot of effort into this, and while I don't want to give you the impression that this is in any way a burden, I have loved every single minute I've spent on this project. I'm confident that I'm putting together something that is worth not only your time, but your resources as well. I'm not going to go with advertising on this one because I think that I can do better and I'm not into using my voice to sell other people's crap. Everything you give me goes back into the work and there are a lot of ways you can contribute. Number one option is Patreon and that's great for you because you get bonus content. Patreon.com slash a Satanist reads the Bible. Next up is the affiliate links on my blog. I link all the books I talk about, and when you click through and buy them, some of that money goes to me. But if you just like, follow, subscribe, and tell people about what I'm doing, that's a huge help as well. And now back to another account of the creation. God creates woman from Adam's rib, and then the serpent comes to them to tempt them to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Quoting here, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In Satan the Accuser, the essay and podcast, I describe how the serpent was retconned into a manifestation of Satan the adversary. This conception is not reflected in the text in which the serpent is among the general host of wild animals created by God. So just as a quick recap there, uh, nothing in Genesis says that the serpent was Satan. That's something that people interpreted into the text later on. Moving on. But for what reason does the serpent tempt Eve? Quoting, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Genesis chapter 3 verses 6 through 7. Eve was not present, was not even created, when God gave the command to Adam not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Did she hear of this from Adam? The serpent was in the end correct, and God is proved to have deceived Adam in telling him the consequences of eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Just as the serpent said, having eaten of the fruit, Adam and Eve did not die, but their eyes were opened, and they became like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis uh, chapter 3 verse 22 says, Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us. Given a literal reading, God had deceived them. And if we are to identify the serpent with Satan, then it is Satan the accuser who prosecutes and rectifies this deception. Eve, too, is laudable here, using her knowledge, reason, and experience to evaluate and question what God has commanded. And if Satan the adversary is our luminary for his rebellion against the injustice of God, then so too should Eve serve as exemplar to the Satanist. This is also another distinction from what is told of the Bible by the literalists who say that Eve tempted Adam to eat the fruit. According to the text, Adam was with her the entire time and was as much a party to the conversation with the serpent as Eve. Eve said nothing to entice Adam, she simply handed him the fruit and he ate. But returning to the tree itself, having created a tree in the center of the garden, and then having forbidden only Adam to eat of it, and having created a serpent who is crafty and who knows the truth of the tree, God curses all three of them and casts them out, making him seem a malevolent trickster or a cruel tyrant. To such a degree as the literalists have emerged as individualistic Cartesians, this would seem a thorough refutation, as Descartes' metaphysics relied wholly on the honesty of God. And from this point forward, it gets really confusing, and I actually had to take a while to sort of go back through this and reinterpret and understand what it was that I was even talking about. So here's my plan, and I've tried doing this a few different ways, and what I settled on is that I'm just going to drive through to the end of the essay, which is about five paragraphs, and then I'm going to try to explain it all at once, because I think it makes more sense once you hear all of it, although it still does require some explanation. So de Susanel has a different interpretation of what the tree represents in the first place. Total immobility and absolute movement are one and the same reality conveyed in the biblical myth by developing the primordial unity of the tree, the yod, the root of the tree, into two apparently contradictory terms, neither excluding each other nor making concessions. They express completely at once what is beyond each of them. And I will pause real quick to say that yod is the Hebrew letter, and de Susanel is referring to that by way of making connections between the Hebrew alphabet and the symbolism of the Bible. Moving on. 
A tree is a bridge between earth and sky and between the motion of the branches and the stillness of the trunk. And so then to Kristeva in her description of the semiotic kora, a modality of significance in which the linguistic sign is not yet articulated as the absence of an object and as the distinction between real and symbolic, and which is itself a reference to the kora of Plato, which exists beyond being and not being. Quoting here from Kristeva, the term drive denotes waves of attack against stases, which are themselves constituted by the repetition of these charges. Together, charges and stases lead to no identity that could be seen as a result of their functioning. This is to say that the semiotic cora is no more than the place where the subject is both generated and negated, the place where his unity succumbs before the process of charges and stases that produce him. And once again, that's from Revolution in Poetic Language, 1974, Waller's translation. And so then to the dialectic of God and the ontologies of God, Satan the Accuser, and the creation, and also again to William Blake. Good is the passive that obeys reason, evil is the active springing from energy, from the marriage of heaven and hell, 1970. De L sees the dialectic between good and evil as being that between perfect and not yet perfect, and there I must differ, for perfection can only be a totality. It would be nullified by the not yet perfect rather than sublated by it. Evil would have nothing to be, nothing not evil by which it would be defined, and there would be only nothing. Combining the three sources, good, which is static, rational, and immobile, is constituted by the repetition of the energy, evil, directed against it. Good exists in terms of evil and evil in terms of good, and the source of both is the kora in which the self arises, the stasis of being, and is destroyed, the energy of not being. The tree is both symbolic of and the passage into the dialectic therein and therefrom. God has planted it and given clues via the serpent to its purpose, though has not mandated that the dialectic continue except through autopoiesis, which is initiated when Eve eats the fruit, and this is indeed a symbolic death, the end of unanswered stasis. One wouldn't be wrong to ask whether the above paragraph has any meaning whatsoever. I begin to see why Hegel and Derrida and others wrote as they did. I find myself writing about a process in which I am engaged, indeed, in which I myself am, with regards to the process of being, and that intra-processness is also itself a part of the process about which I am writing and part of my being within it. It's like two snakes who are each both mating with and eating the tail of the other snake, or like the double helix of DNA. And at no point is there a transcendental signified which would constitute the fixed point of meaning to which this chain of significations is anchored. All right, that was fun. If you're still here, thanks for bearing with me through that. If this is the first episode of A Satanist Reads the Bible that you've listened to, I promise that I'm not always this obscure. What on earth am I even talking about in those last few paragraphs? I have to admit that even I'm a little lost. At the time I wrote this, I was reading a lot of Hegel and post-structural philosophy, and that style of writing, which is kind of infamously difficult, sunk into my head without me being practiced enough at it to make it really functional. But I also have to give myself a little credit. These are conceptually difficult ideas, and as I say in the last paragraph, they're just not easy to write about, especially when the process of writing about the ideas is also part of the process I'm writing about. But basically what I was doing was taking Kristeva's concept of the Kora, which I'll try to explain more in a second, the creation narrative that I'm dealing with in this episode, and de Susanel's biblical symbolism, along with some other ideas, throwing them into a blender and seeing how they intersect. 
What I'm trying to do is construct a symbolic framework with other extant frameworks that can frame this creation narrative as being symbolic of esoteric spiritual concepts rather than being a literal account. And the common thread between all of these different frameworks I'm drawing from, De Susanel, Kristeva, Hegel, Crowley, Buddhist sutras, William Blake, is the process of being and becoming. So the word kora in Greek refers to something Plato was talking about, literally a term used to refer to the area just outside the city walls, but Plato used it as a way of talking about something in between, in between being and not being. And as I mentioned, though unfortunately without giving any explanation, that's an idea that crops up in a lot of different places in religion. And all of this comes together in what is essentially my satanic interpretation of the creation narratives of the Bible, where God is engaged in a dialectic, a process of iteratively resolving contradictions, which is the process by which God is discovering themselves. And on the subject of writing, I'll talk about this more in depth in other episodes, but one book I've been reading and enjoying lately is Gender Trouble by Judith Butler, a foundational work in third-wave feminism that explores the nature of gender. It's coming from a post-structural background, which means that it makes for some difficult reading, and Butler has some words to say in the preface about why clear writing might not always be the best approach. The demand for lucidity, quoting here from Gender Trouble, the demand for lucidity forgets the ruses that motor the ostensibly clear view. Avital Ronell, hope I'm pronouncing that right, recalls the moment in which Nixon looks into the eyes of the nation and said, let me make one thing perfectly clear, and then proceeded to lie. What travels under the sign of clarity, and what would be the price of failing to deploy a certain critical suspicion when the arrival of lucidity is announced? Who devises the protocols of clarity, and whose interests do they serve? What is foreclosed by the insistence on parochial standards of transparency as requisite for all communication? What does transparency keep obscure? The difference between me, or at least the me that wrote this essay last year, and Judith Butler, is that Butler knew what she was doing. Whereas I wasn't coming from a place in which I was able to understand how my writing might be received and understood by people with different backgrounds. And that's completely fine. I'm not beating myself up for not having done better because I couldn't have ever come to do better without first going through this process. I learn by doing, and I think it's as important to reveal my process of learning as it is to reveal what I've learned by that process. Up next, as you may already know, I'm uploading two episodes a week right now, one covering a new piece and one covering an old one, and I'll keep doing that until all of my essays are also podcast episodes. The catch-up series next week will be covering On the Mystical Experience of the Sacred, which is the first essay where I was talking about my own personal experience of religion more than I was doing a reading of a religious text. It's a great piece, it's a lot more clear than this one, and I think you'll really enjoy it. And I'm going to start uh, uploading, and actually already have, started uploading catch-up episodes on Wednesday and the new content episode on Friday, because why not space things out a little more? New content is going to be a piece I've been working on almost since this project started, which delves into a pilgrimage I undertook to Kathmandu in the summer of 2013. I'm really excited that it's finally ready for your ears, and I know you're going to love it or at least find it interesting and informative because it goes into some very difficult experiences I had living in a developing country on a religious pilgrimage. And closing poetry for this episode. I wouldn't be surprised to learn that your name was the first one that I heard, as I was laying prostrate on some sterilized cloth that must have seen a hundred, even a thousand of such births. Even though I don't think that I could have known what it was that you were saying to me. So what did it matter? Why is it that your gods seem such a petty bureaucrat? 
I don't get the sense that the gods much care what it is that we believe, so long as we dash the blood against the sides of the altar and turn the entrails to smoke upon the altar, so as to make an odor pleasing to the Lord. Nothing was offered in recompense for the silence of God. I was left alone. I called your name out into the night, and only the darkness spoke. That's it for the show today. A Satanist Reads the Bible is recorded, produced, and edited by me and me alone, and I do all of the music as well, but I couldn't do it without the support of my friends and listeners. And special thanks to my partner who somehow manages to find the time to read and listen to everything I produce. Love you so much. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for joining me today and for being part of my audience.